WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to NYC Now. I'm Janae Pierre for WNYC. It's been a decade since the NYPD's controversial stop-and-frisk policy was ruled unconstitutional. The practice was a hallmark of policing in New York during the Giuliani administration and hit its peak under former Mayor Mike Bloomberg and his police commissioner Ray Kelly when nearly 700,000 pedestrians were stopped in 2011. But in 2013, Judge Shira Shinlin ordered the police department to make major changes to prevent people from being stopped and searched illegally. She compared the practice to drilling in a dry well. The stops did not produce uh, drugs, did not produce guns, did not produce evidence of crimes. It was just an intrusion into people's freedom to walk about without being harassed by police. Pedestrian stops have declined substantially since then, but have recently crept up again. Shinlin is now retired and talked with WNYC's Tiffany Hansen. That conversation after the break. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer and I have this, this very slight hunch. He has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. I just want to remind listeners exactly what was happening 10 years ago. So can you, before we talk about the ruling, just paint a picture of what was happening at the time in terms of stop and frisk in the NYPD? At that time, there were hundreds of thousands of stops per year. And the, the police department would stop people without what I believe is reasonable suspicion to do so. And not only would they stop them, but they would often frisk them. Most of these stops resulted in nothing. 88%, I believe, was the figure. The remainder had some follow-up, but often very minor. Maybe somebody who was stopped, it would turn out, had a warrant or hadn't paid some fines or whatever. But that, that was a, a sideshow, so to speak. So it was not a very effective policy. In any event, a class action lawsuit was brought. It took years to get it to, tried. And there was a trial before me, and then there was a, a decision. It was a non-jury trial, so I was the only finder of the fact. So the efficacy of the policy aside, I'm wondering, as it relates to this ruling, what about the policy did you find unconstitutional? The majority of the stops were disproportionately against Black and Hispanic people. I don't have the figures in front of me now, 
but the evidence at trial trial showed that they were stopped out of proportion to their percentage in the population in New York. This led to the conclusion that there was a lot of racial profiling going on. The police targeted certain neighborhoods, targeted certain members of our society disproportionately. So the burden fell on Black and Hispanic people. There was testimony at the trial that uh, police were told, essentially, we need to stop the right people in the right places at the right time. There was testimony at the trial that very high up people in the police department said, we all know who's committing the crimes in New York. It's young Black males. The perception in the police department was that these people are always armed and always ready to commit crimes. And if we stop, if we do these stops, they won't commit crimes. You talk about the evidence you heard at trial. I want to know if there was anything you heard in favor of stop and frisk that made you question your ruling at all. No, actually not. And after the ruling, the morning after, the mayor and the police commissioner and the city's corporation council said, oh, now the city's going to blow up with crime. And of course, I'm a human being and I was worried about that. But in reality, the exact opposite happened. The stops plummeted and crime did not go up. So what does that tell us? It tells us that all those stops were essentially useless and they were not what made crime go up or down. It it just didn't have the impact it was supposed to have, except to alienate a lot of New Yorkers and a lot of communities who didn't trust police and wouldn't cooperate with police. And they need police. We know that crime didn't go up. We know that the number of stops plummeted after the ruling. Racial disparities, however, persist. Even today, we know that the number of people stopped are overwhelmingly Black and Latino, even today. So what does that tell you about the state of policing and about, you know, the aftermath following this ruling specifically? Right. I understand your question, and it's a very important one. I issued two opinions, and those two opinions, one was called the liability opinion, and one was called the remedial opinion. The liability opinion found that the city was liable for this unconstitutional practice, and it had to stop, meaning you can still make stops but you have to have a reasonable suspicion to stop somebody. That's what the law is. And the remedial opinion set up a monitorship um, and, and a monitor was appointed and a monitor worked for years with the police department to institute reforms that I set forth in the remedial opinion. So there was far more training. They also had to document the stop in a better way, write up the reason. They had to tell the person stopped here's why you were stopped. Here's a form. Here's the name of the stopping officer. Oh, and the biggest one, of course, forgive me, was body cameras. That that was the first really used by a big urban center of body cameras, which we accept today all over the United States. But all that said, I don't know that it was as effective as I would like. It was slow. It's taken years. The monitorship is still in effect. The current monitor wrote a report to the court saying, she was troubled. She felt that not enough progress has been made. She's still getting some resistance from the police department and the changes that need to be made. There's still disproportionate stopping of Black and Hispanic people and the rise. Now we're seeing a rise in stops again, and it's racially disproportionate. That's former Judge Shira Shinlin talking with WNYC's Tiffany Hansen. 
WNYC's Community Partnerships Desk is teaming up with the nonprofit Street Lab to highlight stories from neighborhoods across New York City. Here's what we heard from folks in Washington Heights. I'm Charles LaSalle from Washington Heights. People tend to think of Washington Heights and think of the negative, like, violence. But for us, it's a very warm community. I'm the founder of City Gym Boys, a fitness company that mentors inner-city youth on the lifelong benefits of fitness and exercise. It's interesting because there's so many out of shape young people these days. Kids, they, they don't know how to move anymore because there's no reason to move. We have Uber Eats, everything is, you know, I'll just bring it right to you. I'm Jordan Benjamin. I'm a kid that grew up in Washington Heights. I went to school here. I'm from immigrating parents from the Dominican Republic. Growing up in the Heights, it was always either you was a drug dealer or played basketball. There wasn't a lot of things you could look forward to. But as I met Charles in the City Gym Boys, I found that there was other things I, could, I was able to look for a passion for, which is fitness. Been with Charles for the last three years. He's been mentoring me. I'm about almost 21 already, and I could say I learned a lot through this organization. Biggest challenge I see is the fast food restaurants. You see Wendy's, you see McDonald's, Burger King, Popeye's. It's in every corner now. The resources is also a big challenge. If you go to the store, a lot of the things that are healthy, they cost a lot of money. That's a big problem in this in this community. A lot of the people don't have the income to even stay in a healthy life. They'd rather just go to McDonald's, get them a chicken, dollar fifty-three cents. If they want to go build a salad or get some vegetables, it'll cost them a lot more. My name is David Vines. I'm an immigration lawyer. So I work with uh, unaccompanied minors at a nonprofit. And so I'm very fortunate that a fair amount of the work is remote. So I get to, during my lunch break, take a nice little walk uh, with the pup. It's a beautiful neighborhood with like, you know, a really wonderful combination of like families, young people, things to do, walkable, easy to get absolutely anywhere I need to go in the city over the subway. It's perfect. I really genuinely love it. My name is Veronica Santiago Liu, and I'm from Word Up Community Bookshop which is down the street here at 165 and Amsterdam Avenue. Word Up is a collectively run, volunteer-powered, nonprofit bookstore and art space, community space. We sell you know, used and new books in English and Spanish and often other languages. We also host a lot of community events inside, outside, online, You know, a space that's casual where you don't necessarily have the pressure to buy something, but you can gather over, over books or have this reflective space I've lived here for more than 20 years. They're real things you need in neighborhoods. I find some neighborhoods in New York, you can't find a hardware store anymore. But, you know, right on the corner of where Word Up is, we have within a block, every kind of school, every grade level, we have the post office. We have a hospital. <laughs> we, have a, we have a jail. We have everything right there. And that feels to me like uh, a real space where real people live. My name is uh, David Cajigas. I'm a mailman for uh, this area here in Washington Heights. Zip code 132. I'm very friendly. I'm a person that always smiles, greets people, good morning, afternoon. So every day is a different day. Uh, you know, sometimes you find people in need, you stop, you give them a word, maybe make the, that makes their day and, you know, you keep on going. Maybe you help someone cross the street, an elderly and stuff like that, you know, part of the daily day. My name is Haley Baez and I'm from Dykeman. My story is my mom surviving breast cancer. She's just always been there, like she's always been like a role model in my life. Like she's been through so much since she was very young because my grandma is an immigrant and they were very poor growing up. So, you know, seeing her like go through something like that it really like destroyed me, but it made us stronger, like our bond stronger. If you ever get mad at your parents, just remember that the day that they leave, you will miss them more than anything. Because when I saw my mom, 
so skinny, no hair. I regretted every time I was mad at her, every time I yelled at her. So just be thankful that you still have your parents around because I'm thankful I still have mine. That's a collection of voices from Washington Heights. Thanks for listening to NYC Now from WNYC. Catch us every weekday, three times a day. We'll be back tomorrow.